right, how are we doing? Awesome. Happy, happy spring, spring to you guys. It feels so good outside, does it not? So wonderful, amazing. If this is your first time, we're so glad that you are at Young Adults. You are in the right place, man. Tonight is going to be so good, I promise. I just, it's going to be a good one. Um, hey, we are in a series called God's Plan, God's Plan, because we believe that God has some intentions when it comes to our lives. If you're in here and you're new to church, that's cool. Um, this series is for you, okay? I remember being a new Christian, and like they'd be like, turn to Philippians, and I'd be like, What? So, this is the kind of church you want to be in. It is the kind of church that, um, man, we love people that are getting to know God for the first time. And so, we are in a series called God's Plan. It is about his intentions. It is about his motivations towards us. It's about his heart towards us. The Bible says that before you were born, that God actually knew you. And that he predestined you to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. That God has a very specific plan for every single person in here. He has so many thoughts and ambitions towards you and for you. And so if you're in here and you're like, oh my gosh, do I have any purpose? Yes, you do. It's actually not even, there's not even a question mark around that. You don't have to do anything to earn that. You have a purpose. Um, and it's from him. The Bible talks a lot about his plans that he has for you. In Jeremiah 29, 11, you know this even if you've never been in church. Uh, God says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope. Praise God, this world needs hope and a future. And then it says this in Proverbs 16, verse 9. It says that in his heart, a man uh, makes plans, that we scheme plans, that we got plans, that we're like, I got, some, I got some stuff that I've been planning. And God's like, cool, but I'm going to direct your steps, right? And then it says in Isaiah 25, it says this. I love this. Verse 1, it says, The Lord, you are my God. I will exalt and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. And so I think for the majority of, of people in America, whether you are a Christian or not, you're wondering what the plan is for you or what the purpose is for you. If you don't believe in God, maybe you believe in the universe. And you're like, what's the universe's plan for me? And you can go to Barnes & Noble and you can pick up a book. Um, there, there will be, like Connor talked about last week, there will be hundreds of thousands of books based on this idea of your purpose. It is why uh, Purpose Driven Life is one of the best-selling books of all time. The subtitle of it is, why in the world am I here? Because nobody knows. And God says, that's great. You can read some books. You can um, check out some books from the library. You can make sure that you do your reading and that you listen to the TED Talks. But the reality is, I've already told you about my plans. And I've told you that they're good. And I've told you that I planned them a long time ago. And they're not going to harm you. And they're going to give you a hope and a future. But I also told you that they're not going to come out of the heart of a man. And so I think what God wants us to do tonight is he wants us to look to him again and revert our direction again back to the source of the plan for our lives. Yes, God has a plan. And the only question is, are we going to look to him and ask him for it? And so what I want to talk to us about tonight is how do you position your life? How do you maneuver your life? How do you adjust your life? How do you position yourself? to receive God's will for you. And so I titled tonight, The Best Seat in the House, The Best Seat in the House. And so if everybody could stand up one more time. 
And I want you to switch seats with the person next to you. I don't know how that's all going to sort out. Maybe to your right or to your left. And then have a seat. <laughs> I hope this worked out okay for you. And now I want you to turn to the person and be like, oh, okay. Say, now I have the best seat. Sometimes it just takes an adjustment to get the best seat. Sometimes it just takes us moving just a little bit, moving a position just a little bit to get the right seat. Let's pray and let's ask God to be here. God, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we, we adore you. Jesus, our King, we honor you. Father, we are so glad that we're your kids. And God, we pray that tonight that you would join us in this place. Holy Spirit, be here in a fresh way. May uh, the words that proceed from my mouth be pleasing to you, God. May you just have your way, God. May we all get out of the way. May the worship team get out of the way. The tech team get out of the way. May I get out of the way so that you can just have what you need to have within us and through us. Jesus, we love you. In your name, amen. All right, so you guys remember uh, assigned seating in high school? Um, like you chose your seat the first day, and it was kind of a big deal, right? Do you remember? Because you'd be like, okay, okay, because you'd go in, and that was your seat. The, the seat you chose was your seat for the rest of the year. And so you walked in, and you're like, okay, there's a lot writing on this, right? And you would walk in, because if you sat too far to the right, you couldn't see the board, right? And they'd be doing stoichiometry, and you'd be like... I'm not sure even what that word is, right? And then, or you, you, right? Or if you sat too far to the back, you would miss the discussion within the room, like you'd miss anything that the teacher was saying. And then you also had to choose your seat based on who you were sitting next to, right? Like you knew that for the whole year, you didn't necessarily want to sit next to like, you know, like Chatty Cathy, maybe, you know, like the Gossip Girl. And she's like, oh my gosh, Kim K. And you're like, that's awesome, but I, am, I don't learn anything. And so you don't want to sit next to her, right? You don't want to sit next to a mind student because he's going to, like, beat you every time. Every time. The rate of return, you will not win. Like, like there's just no win for you. So don't sit next to him, right? You don't want to sit next to, like, somebody from Boulder because they didn't shower. And so you want to make sure that you want to make sure that you just choose your seat right. So I'm kidding, guys. I'm kidding. Oh, Lord Jesus. But no, seriously. Um, patchouli works, so it's fine. Um, no, seriously though, we like we choose our seats and we make sure that we adjust our lives accordingly because we want to make sure that the the seat we choose really is going to determine how our semester goes. Um, for some of you who maybe know about the T zone, who knows about the T zone in here? When you when you uh, sit down in your chair, anybody? That's fine. Just us brown nosers. I will keep my hand up. It's fine. <laughs> The T-zone is the front two rows of any classroom, and it is the middle kind of um, around the aisle. And basically, uh, there have been studies done about people that sit in these places, and they are the people who are more um, probably going to be involved in the classroom. They are more apt to raise their hand. They are more apt to be involved in the learning. And because of that, they have a better uh, learning experience, and they have a better uh, position when it comes to the kind of class that they are going to take and what the outcome of that class is going to have for them. And so it is actually really great to sit in one of these places. And so if it's your first day of school, the only thing you're thinking about is, okay, I have to choose the right seat because the seat that I have is going to kind of determine a little bit my outcome and my feeling about this class. 
But this isn't the only time we position ourselves, right? Fellas in here, I don't know if you know this, but you are the pursuer and the women are the responders when it comes to a relationship. And so because we can't pursue you, because the female gender, ladies, you should not pursue them. Um, (laughs) What we do instead is we position ourselves, if I'm just being honest, right? And this is something I did with my husband. It's something my mama did with my daddy. And so no shame, right? And basically what it means is that we find out what you enjoy, we find out where you are, and then we maneuver and position ourselves to be there. And then we're like, pursue this, right? It's, it's so real. Like the girls are like, whoa, don't give away my secret, but it's so real. And so she is going to do some recon work and she is going to find out that you serve in Kids Rock, fellas. And listen, if you want to know the plan, God's plan for your life, God's plan is for you to serve in Kids Rock. Because then she's going to be like, oh my God, he loves children, you know? And, and she's going to roll in there and she's going to be like, oh, hey, you're volunteering too. Awesome. Veggie tails tonight, you know? Like, and so it's awesome. It's positioning, right? Or she's going to find out that you play volleyball. And we've got at redrocksports.com. If you guys do not play in one of our sports leagues, it is so fun. And you're going to go, you know, and you're going to be playing volleyball. And she's going to be like, Red Rock Sports. She has no idea what volleyball is. Like, she has never played. And she's going to show up. And she's going to be like, sup? Um, Bump, set, spike. I'm so ready, you know? (laughs) Because, listen, a female should never pursue but she will position. And I can, I can actually say, folks, that this is biblical because if you read the story of Boaz and Ruth, they like lock eyes from a field and he's like, oh, hey. And she's like, oh, hey. And then after, she positions herself in a way to be like, Boaz, pursue this. Like, it's so awesome. It's so awesome. We will not pursue, but we will position. We position ourselves when it comes to our jobs. You make sure that that first day in your job that you roll in and that if the CEO comes in or the boss comes in, you stand up and you shake their hand and you make eye contact because you do not want them to overlook you. You position yourself. You want to make sure that when it comes to, you know, the the water cooler and the specific and, and maybe important conversations that happen there, that you position yourself there at the right time. We position ourselves, and we do all of this because we hope to attain an outcome. We do all of this because something is riding on us being um, seen. Something is riding on us not being overlooked. We do this so that we can obtain the thing that we think we want or the thing that we think we need. And so the only question then for you and for me is how do we then, we know how to position in the world, but how do we then position in God's kingdom? And how do we position ourselves before the Lord? And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke 14, Luke 14, and that is where we are going to hang out tonight. We're going to start in verse 1, although I would say 7 through 11 is where we're going to hang out most of the time. And it says this. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine, that's meaning Jesus, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or no? And they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to him, Which of you, having a son or having an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. 
Now, he told a parable um, of those who were invited when he noticed how they chose where they sat. And he said to them, when you are invited to someone's wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who uh, invited you both will come and say to you, give up your place to this person, and then you will, be, uh, then you will begin with shame to the lowest place. When I, um, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of everybody who's sitting there. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So this story is about Jesus attending a dinner party. And anytime Jesus is uh, uh, going to a dinner party, anytime he's invited to a dinner party, it is an ambush set up by the Pharisees every time. And their hope is to catch Jesus doing something really dumb in their presence. That's their hope. It's an ambush. And so in this case, they invite everybody, and a man with dropsy is invited. And dropsy, the, uh, the, the original term dropsy, it comes from pooling waters. It's, a, a, it's like edema or a swelling of the limbs or the hands. And so this, this man walks in with swelling in his body that is severe. And immediately they look at Jesus like, what are you going to do? Now, if you are ever wondering what God does in a scenario that desires compassion, God will have compassion. If you are ever wondering what God is going to do in a moment where someone is in need, he is going to fulfill that need. And so God does what God can only do. He can't help himself. And Jesus lays hands on him and he heals him in an instant. And then he gives the Pharisees a bunch of examples. He says, well, if you had a son that fell in a well or if you had an ox that fell in a well, wouldn't you help it? He's trying to get them to understand that compassion goes without boundaries because their whole thing was that he healed on the Sabbath and they wanted to catch him healing on the Sabbath. See, because at this point in time, it was, um, it was unlawful in the Torah to do any work of any kind on the Sabbath. And so if he healed on the Sabbath, it was like in their mind, aha, got you, because that means you're not from God or for God. And Jesus comes in and he goes, boom, healed. And then he gives these examples and he goes, now, which one of you wouldn't be compassionate on the Sabbath? And all of them look at him and they're like, like ambivalent. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm fired up now. And he's like, okay, you want to hold me to account? You want to hold me to, you want to hold me to account? Okay, I'm going to hold you to account. Let's talk about positioning tonight. And he goes, and he goes, okay, let's talk about like, where you're sitting. And at this point in time, it was like um, patriarchal, like, you know, rabbinical musical chairs. Okay? And you guys remember musical chairs where you'd be like really slow on the front end and then you'd be like, you know, like, I'm in heels, so I'm not going to die. You know, but it was really slow. And the whole goal was of musical chairs was to get the chair before somebody else did. Except for in this case with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the whole goal was to find the chair of honor or the chairs or positions of honor before anybody else got there. And so a dude would roll up and he'd be like, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey. And he'd be like, Gamaliel, <laughs> too slow, bud, Okay. Pull up your tunic next time. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Try it. Run harder next time, okay? I win. Yep. And he notices that every single person is vying and positioning for this place to be noticed, to be recognized. And Jesus says, let's talk about your positioning. 
This wasn't the first time that this happened. I was reading a historical text this week that talked about a Pharisee who positioned himself, this is a true story, in between a Roman official and his wife. And he sat down right in between them, and the Roman official was like, how can you dishonor me like this? And he goes, oh, yo. He says, my wisdom is my honor. And what he's saying in this moment is because I think I'm awesome, <laughs> and I've like, w- learned some wisdom from God, I have earned this seat. And so every single rabbi and Pharisee in there was saying, I have earned this seat of honor. It actually belongs to me. And then Jesus tells a parable. And he tells a parable, not of a feast that they're at at this point, not of a dinner party, but of a wedding feast. And he says, now, if you are at a wedding feast, he said, do not take the seat of honor. Lest someone show up, that's more important than you. Like God Because then you are going to ask, be asked to get up and move to a lower seat. And how embarrassing for you. What a disgrace. How red-faced are you going to be? And then he says, instead, you should take a lower seat that is unnoticed, that is unrecognized, that is unlit. And you should wait for your host to invite you up to an upgraded chair. And I was thinking about it this week, and it reminded me of an office episode. (laughs) And so um, please don't judge me, because I do watch The Office, and hopefully this isn't too off-color. But it's a story, uh, or it's it's an episode where um, the boss, Michael, is attending the wedding of one of his employees, Phyllis. (laughs) And he attempts to take a seat that doesn't belong to him. Not only that, but he attempts to give a speech that really isn't his to give, and so watch this clip. Michael Scott, and for the next 40 minutes, I am going to be your tour guide through the lives of Phyllis Lappin and Bob Vance, one of the great, seemingly impossible love stories of our time. My name is Michael Scott, Webster's Dictionary defines wedding as the fusing of two metals with a hot torch. Well, you know something? I think you guys are two metals, gold medals. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Michael Scott, Phyllis's boss. To quote from... The Princess Bride. Marriage! The most important part of a speech is the opening line. When time is not a factor, I like to try out three or four different ones. Phyllis and Bob, their celebrity couple name would be Flob. You look at her, and she's kind of matronly today. But back in high school, I swear... Her nickname was Easy Rider. Now, as for Bob, Bob Vance is a guy that he works. Okay, hold hold on, hold on, hold on. Look, look. Um, I didn't say anything when Phyllis's dad upstaged me at the ceremony, and I think you owe me this. Okay. Give me the microphone. No, I'm not going to. Give me the microphone. Okay. 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 Good. You're out of here. Yeah, you're out of here. I hate you. I love The Office. 
It's so funny, though, because I think sometimes we look at Michael Scott and we're like, oh, we're nothing like him. But I think he's a microcosm of our innermost stuff. And he takes a seat and he takes a position that he was really never meant to, to take. And in his mind and in our minds, I mean, I think that we're a lot like him, maybe more like, that, like him than we would want to admit, that we vie and that we position ourselves in a way to receive what we want or to receive what we think we need. This is true in corporate America. This is why we use terms like the rat race and why we use terms like climbing to the top and elbowing your way to the top or climbing the ladder of success. We say these things because we believe that in order to have the seat of honor, you have to take it. We believe that there is something in us that has to show that we're powerful in order to be powerful. This is why the TED Talk about power poses is one of the biggest, like, most viewed TED Talks of all time. And the whole TED Talk is about how to appear powerful. And it's like, make sure that you stand like this. I swear to you that this is one of them. Make sure that you sit like this, like when you sit in a chair. <laughs> or make sure when you're leaning over a table, it's like that nobody stands like that. And yet, this has been viewed over, uh, let's see, 47 million times, which I did the math, is about 40% of the workforce right now. Like 40% of the workforce, and they've discovered that it's pseudoscience, that none of it actually even matters, and yet there's still something in us that says there's got to be a way to position myself or to maneuver myself in a way to appear powerful and to get the thing that I desire or I need. It is based in a lie that in order to be seen, I have to elbow my way into the spotlight. And God says, look, 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 I've got a different way for you. We believe that God has a plan for each of us. And he says to us, it's going to be very different. If you want to position yourself for my plan, then you are going to need to position yourself in a way that is different from the world, that is different maybe from your subconscious and the way that you've been kind of trying to find your way in life. And you are going to have to come low so I can raise you up. And so I think God wants to speak to us tonight about some biblical truths that are going to be in power in your life. And the first thing about his positioning that we need to understand is this, is that humility is better than hustle every time. Humility is better than hustle every time. Luke 14, 11 says this, at the end of his sermon, he gives, or at the end of his parable, he gives this note and he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What he's saying in this moment is that you can never lose in the kingdom. You will always win in God's kingdom if you will humble yourself. And humility is this thing in the Bible. It is an act of the will where we align our soul to the Holy Spirit and we submit to the authority and to the overarching power of God. And we say, not my way, but your way. That is humility. And the Bible explains humility as something we do to ourselves. God will give you a circumstance to humble yourself in, but he will not humble you. God will give you a scenario in which to humble yourself, but he himself won't push you into the ground. He says, humble yourself. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may in due time exalt you. In this verse here, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who, what, humble themselves will be exalted. It is a choice. And humility is a fruit of the spirit. It is an alignment with uh, meekness and with gentleness. 
And I used to hear that word meekness, and I pictured Schmeagle. And I pictured him being like, meekness. Like, I pictured him being like, do you know what I mean? And I pictured, like, kind of gross, and like, I pictured weakness. That's what I pictured when I pictured meekness. And yet, it could not be further from that. True humility, true meekness is actually power under control. When Jesus went to the cross at Calvary, he showed meekness to the world. The moment that he's, you know, in in the face of Pontius Pilate and he's being accused, the Bible said that like a sheep led to shears, he did not open his mouth. Jesus could have opened his mouth and let out an atomic bomb. And he did not open his mouth. He could have like, like fireballs, like in, you know, video games. And he could have burned everybody and he didn't open his mouth. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who has the potential of having the upper hand, who has the ability of having the upper hand and then chooses not to take it. That is true power. And Jesus says, I demonstrate my power, my meekness, my humility, but not opening my mouth. That is meekness. That is humility. And the Bible says this is something that you and I need to begin to uh, take on in our lives. It is the way that we position ourselves in order to receive the true will of God. Jesus in this moment, it's almost as if he's like, God, I trust in your position in me and your position for me over the world's position for me. I trust in the way that you view me over the way that these people view me. I trust that I am favored by you and that I am important to you and that you know my name and I trust in that more than anything else. See, humility is actually a confidence and a trust. Humility is not insecurity. It is actually having complete security, not in your abilities, not in your talents, not in your charisma, but in the fact that the head of the party knows your name. See, when this man goes and he takes his seat at, his, at the table, when he goes back, he does so in complete confidence. And he sits back here. And it's because he knows that the man that invited him knows his name. And so he's cool. He's cool with this guy getting more than he's getting because he trusts in the intention of the heart of the master of the banquet. He knows that the master of the banquet has his best intentions in mind. And so it doesn't matter that he's sitting at the back of the banquet. He knows that he is at the top of his father's priority list. And so he's cool. And because of that, he is completely free, church. Humble people are the most free people you are ever going to meet. They have the most fun. They love life the most. They're the most carefree because they have nobody to impress because they've already humbled themselves. Humble people get it. They understand life. They have more riches than we could ever hope for. And and they're not rich. Because of this, humility can set you free. And you would think that right now in the church that, man, that everybody would be talking about this word humility. I mean, you would think in the American church that we would, like, have pastors, like, all over Instagram that are like, hashtag meek men. Hashtag humility's hot. Like, hashtag, like, gentle gentlemen, you know? But right now in, in, in our Christianity... In our Christianity, you guys, we are starting to value this thing called hustle more than humility. And we say hashtag side hustle, hashtag no hustle, no muscle, another day, another hustle. I don't even know, right? Like, but these are like the things that we say 
And it's almost as if we believe that the outcome of God's will on our life, that, that, that maybe salvation was 100% contingent upon Jesus, but the outcome of God's will on our life is now 100% contingent upon our abilities to hustle, right? Like, it's like, what in the world? Like, as Dwight Schrute says, false. Like, it is not true. That is bad doctrine. There's something in us that actually believes that when we come to Jesus, we get completely saved by his power, but then we finish our race in our own power, and it is ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. The way that you started your walk was by submitting yourself to God. The way that you finish your walk is by submitting yourself to God. He says, that is the way that my kingdom works. And if you do not humble yourself, you will never receive what I have for you. See, hustle says, this is the only way that you get this chair. And God says, the only way you get this chair is if you humble yourself. Humility will outwork hustle every single time. Trust it. Every single time. God just says, humble yourself, therefore, under my hand. And in due time, I will exalt you. The second thing I think he wants us to understand tonight is that his kingdom and his positioning when it comes to his will for our lives is that we are, should be more about releasing and less about reaching. That releasing is better than reaching, that releasing is better than reaching. You know, when this man gave up this seat, he was actually releasing it so that somebody else could have it. And that somebody else could take it. And you say, I don't know if I could do that. But Ecclesiastes says that releasing is better than reaching every single time. Ecclesiastes 4 says this, better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What this verse is saying is that it is better for you to have one hand, at least maybe two, that is completely open-handed. Completely open-handed. Releasing, 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 releasing. Because when you live open-handed, when somebody needs, it is a better way to live. When somebody needs a hand up, you can give them a hand up because you got one. When someone needs a handout, you can give them a handout because you got one. They need a hug. They need a friend. Open-handed people are better friends. When they need a handout or a hand up or like whatever, you are able to lend a helping hand because you actually have one available. And not only that, listen, there's something in our psyche that believes the Bible says that godliness uh, with contentment is great gain. And we read it and we're like, gain with great gain is gain, gain, gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He says when you live open-handed, that is the only time, listen, when you release, that is the only time you are able to receive. I've told this story before, but a few, uh, gosh, it was a couple years ago now, I only needed to go to the grocery store to get a card. Single people, treasure the days. You can go to the grocery store for a greeting card, and you don't have a toddler that is keeping you from doing so. Okay, so I roll in with Brooklyn, and she's like two and a half, I think, and I'm like, okay, girl, we got one mission. We can do this, right? All right, we got it. We get into the store. Everything's cool, and then she like, we're, I'm picking out a card, and she like limp noodles, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, and I'm like, Brooklyn, get out. 
get up. And I'm already embarrassed. I'm like, get up right now. And then I like see this little kiosk with ponies. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to give you a pony. And I'm like, here, babe, here. And she like grabs it, right? And I'm like, oh, amen. Praise God. And she's chill. So I pick out a card. I'm like, we are good to go. Let's go. And so we stand in line at self-checkout. And I'm like, boop, put the card in. And I'm like, baby, give me the pony. And she's like, I'm like, baby, girl, pony. I got a boop. And she's like, I mean, she looks at me like, do you, are you evil? Like, do you mean me ill will? And I'm like, what? Like, give me your pony. And I try, like, literally, I'm like, just, just, and then I pick her up. I'm like, boop. <laughs> like, just trying to get her to like, and finally, this is a true story. I like, I'm like, Brooklyn. And I like, pry it out of her hands, blood curdling scream. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't beat her. Okay. <laughs> I don't beat her. And I'm like, boop. And I throw it in the bag and we leave. Right. And I show up at the shower that I'm supposed to give this card at. And I get in there and this girl's like, oh, hey, hey, do you live in Littleton now? And I was like, yeah, I do. And she's like, oh, parenting's hard. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like she was there. <laughs> I like saw me. I'm like, it's so hard, you know. <laughs> but in this moment, like Brooklyn was unwilling to release. And what she didn't understand is that literally in this moment, it's such a biblical truth. The only way I can give her what she wants is if she lets it go. How many of us tonight, like you are struggling so hard to release that thing, that dream, that ambition to God? How many of you are struggling to release that and maybe that, that relationship that you have or the way that you've been managing your money? Maybe you have a position at work or you have a leverage at work and you've been holding on to it because it's all you have left. And he's like, let it go. The only way I can actually give you something great is if you release so just let go. God absolutely wants to do us a favor when we let go. We begin our Christianity by receiving. But I think sometimes for you and for me, we continue our Christianity by achieving. And that is not what God wants for us and not what he has. He says, stop grasping. Some of you tonight need to let go of some favor to somebody else. Some of you need to release some forgiveness. Maybe you need to release a position Maybe you need to release some encouragement. Maybe you need to release somebody um, for what they did to you. I don't know. But releasing is the way to position yourself towards God's will. And the last thing is this. No's and not yet's are God's positioning for his yes. No's and not yet's are God's positioning for his yes. When the man at the banquet takes the lower seat, I think sometimes we can assume that he is doing this because he is um, maybe so humble that he's given up his dreams. He has no ambitions anymore. Like maybe he doesn't, he doesn't mind being a doormat. He doesn't mind being the dude at the party that like never gets seen. He doesn't mind being that dude. And nothing could be further from the truth because that man knows that the only way that he can receive God's good and perfect plan for him is by moving into a position where God can actually invite him into that plan. See, we think that sometimes that God's plan for us is about invading. But just in the same way that God's plans for us are about receiving and not achieving, God's plans for us are about being invited into, not invading in. God looks at us and he says, the only way, this man knew that the only way that he could receive what God had for him is by coming low. And so he takes his seat and he waits, look church, to be 
invited into his proper chair. See, because he knew I didn't want to hustle for a chair that wasn't mine. And I want to receive what's actually mine. A few years ago, this was a while ago now, and honestly, as I look back, I'm, I'm grateful because I don't feel like this person anymore. Um, but when I first started out in my calling and feeling like God was calling me to vocational ministry, to full-time ministry, I started applying for a bunch of jobs at Red Rocks, and I was an intern, and then, um, and then I actually got like a small job here as an admin, and I remembered applying for other jobs because I didn't want to be an admin. I wanted to be something else. And I applied for the women's ministry job. And they were like, no, because you're not married and you're 22. And I was like, okay, your loss, right? <laughs> and I applied for this job. I got really excited because they were hiring for the life groups director and I applied for that and they said no. And then I remembered I applied for it. They started this new program at Red Rocks and it was for new believers. And I got saved when I was 18 and had such a heart for new believers. And I was like, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I applied, had my heart really in it. And they said no. And I remembered like walking back to my car and feeling like, like they're really, at the time I remembered thinking there's really nothing left for me. Like the, there's nothing left. There's no hopes, there's no dreams. And I remembered like kind of being like, I was angry with the Lord and I sat there and I cried against my steering wheel and I was like, you, you're the one that said you're calling me and you said that. So I didn't do the other stuff, could have been an actress. <laughs> this is what I decided to do. And I felt God's peace, I cried a lot, but then I felt God's peace and I would have words for it later on, but I felt like God had told me, look, I'm not gonna give you a seat that belongs to somebody else. And in the same way, I'm not gonna give somebody else your seat. And so humble yourself so that I can invite you into it. There is a power, church, in you releasing. There is a power in you having humility. And there is a power. The way the kingdom works is inviting, never invading. Listen, our, our, our responsibility as Christians is to release. It is never to, is, it is never to reach. Never, not once. It is to be humble. The world says you need to hustle. That's not God. And God is wondering tonight, if you want what I have for you, then you have to do these minor things. You have to make some adjustments in the way that you're positioning your heart. You have to make some adjustments in the way you're positioning your life. And it is to be humble. It is to release some things in your life. And it is to wait for me to invite you because I will. When this man sits down in this chair, he has complete confidence that the king that his father, that the head of the banquet, that he knows his name and that he has a place for him and that when that time is right, you know, other people can have their wins and it's cool, but when the time is right, he will have his day and he will have his win. And when he does, it is going to be a chair that is fit for him. You want to be invited into something, church. You do not want to take it. Have you ever seen somebody take a spot that's not theirs? There's nothing more unattractive. There is nothing more ungodly. There is nothing more like, oh, yuck, right? Like, that is not what we want. And the Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. The Bible says he opposes the proud. 
but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, that in due time, the, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, that he may exalt you. Listen, there is no kicking open doors in the kingdom of God. If there were, I would have done it like 50 times over. But God will open a door that no man can close, and he will close a door that no man can open, no matter how hard you try. And so maybe he, tonight, he's like, let go a little bit. Church, releasing humility, inviting. And as we think about this principle of inviting this week, I was thinking about our calling and how we talk about calling, how I talk about calling sometimes. And I think that in the church we have gotten ourselves into a space and into a place where we actually think that calling is, is like what Connor talked about last week. It's a person, it's a place, or it's a thing. It's a place I'm supposed to go, it's a person I'm supposed to marry, it's a thing I'm supposed to do, right? And that's what we actually think our calling is. But in the Bible, if you do a word search, go home and look up calling. In the Bible, a calling is more often than not an invitation, praise God, to God himself. When God calls Samuel, he is calling Samuel to himself. When God calls Abraham, he is calling him chiefly to himself. Jesus says that I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners to myself that I will call you into my glorious riches to myself and God is saying tonight look I think we have missed what it means to be followers of Christ and I don't know if you're feeling this tonight but I sure am that maybe we think that our walk with God is more about our seat at the table than the fact that we're actually sitting at the table with our God and that maybe Maybe, just maybe, there's more than one person in here. I don't know who I'm preaching to, but you have been seeking God's favor over God's face. You have been seeking his gifts over his presence. You have been seeking the things that, you, that he has for you, his hands, instead of his face. And he's looking at you and he's like, there's no job that's going to satisfy you. There's no woman that's going to satisfy you. There's no, the, the, what you're looking for, the thing that you are hoping that is going to meet every need and every desire that you could ever have or ever want. That's not a thing, a place, or a person. That is me. And I think tonight he's looking at us and he's like, would you return? Would you release? Would you humble yourself? And would you repent for desiring my gifts more than me? Desiring my calling more than me. Desiring my favor more than me. God doesn't want that. And I think, listen church, anytime I have sought his face, the Bible says that if we seek his kingdom first, everything else will be added. But listen, we need to not look at everything else that needs to be added and not seek his face. And so if everybody could stand. Second Corinthians says this. For no matter how many of the promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. And through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. There are promises that you are waiting on. I know what that feels like. But I think God wants to say to you tonight, none of those promises are going to make you feel like my presence. None of those promises are going to make you feel like your moment of looking at me, of worshiping me, of God is yes and amen in the person and in the face of Jesus and so if every head could bow God we thank you for tonight and God I thank you for every single person in here
I thank you, God, that we can come and we can be humble and you have great things for us when we do. I thank you, God, that there is no place that is like your presence, that there is no satisfaction that this world has like a moment with you. I pray that tonight that people would actually have a heart move, that they would reposition themselves in Jesus' name and that they would move themselves instead of maybe trying to strive so hard or work so hard or achieve so hard, they would position themselves under your hand for your will. And God, I pray, God, that if there is anybody in here tonight that is feeling like maybe there is a wall between them and you, that they would understand that it is easily brought down just by confessing whatever that wall is. Maybe it's unbelief, maybe it's hurt, maybe it's pain, but God, that that wall just crashes through the ground the moment that they say, God, this is, this is what the wall looks like. Help me. And God, I pray that every single person in here would experience your goodness and your grace. May your church be empowered by their humility and their release and their righteousness and how much we crave you, God. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.